will be a test of our our, our listeners' devotion. <laughs> if we still have a listener after this, they can take anything. Welcome to another episode of Arraycast. My name is Connor. I'm your host for today, and I guess for all the other episodes until I get kicked off. Um, we're going to go around and start with brief introductions of our panelists. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, and then go to Adam. Well, up until recently, I would just say that I've been a Jay enthusiast for 20 years, and then somebody asked me a question, and I didn't step back from it. So now I'm actually coordinating the revamping of the Jay Wiki, which is... A a bit of a monster, <laughs> but uh, we're getting on underway. We've had a meeting and people are coming together. So I actually have an official responsibility, um, but uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing right now with Jay. I'm Adam Bozewski. Um I totally feel your pain, Bob. Uh, I do a lot of editing on the APL wiki, um, but other than that, I'm full-time APLR at Dialog Limited. I'm Stephen Taylor. I used to edit as well. I used to edit Vector, the journal of the British APL Association for some years. I've been an APL programmer since forever, been a Q and KDB programmer for the last several years. I'm currently the KX librarian. And my name is Connor. As I mentioned before, I'm a professional C++ developer, but I'm a huge array language enthusiast and super excited about today's topic. I was trying to jog my memory. Have I done any editing? Uh, I did for Father's Day once when I was like eight, make a little three-page newspaper with my three sisters. I'm not sure if that counts, um, but I think that's the only editing I've done in my life. Um, but yes, uh, we don't have any announcements for today, unless if we want to chat a little bit more about uh, what you're doing, Bob. Um, I did see on the reflector or the emails or whatever they call the J Forum, uh, are there things we can expect or should we should we wait until more meetings have happened and you've got news to announce um, or do you want to say anything more more about the the revamping of the JWiki? Well, as, as Adam acknowledges, this is a really big project and whenever I hit into a really big project, the first thing I do is sort of walk in and look around and find out what I'm working with and, and the people I'm working with. And luckily, I'm working with a number of really excellent people, a lot of different skills. But I think we still have to come to terms with... Uh, how we're going to deploy that. Um, so it's not going to happen quickly, but most large projects don't happen quickly. Um, and I guess the, I mean, generally, in a general direction, we're just trying to make the wiki a bit more accessible, a little easier to search, which I think a lot of people will be very happy about, and uh, maybe a bit more friendly towards people who are just picking up J. And that's, those are the sort of the main areas. But um, the wiki, I, the, the example I gave is it's like a mansion that's been left... <laughs> you know, out in the wilderness for a few years. And it's got great bones, and it's got a lot of different things. And you could turn it into Disney World if you wanted. But um, but it's going to, you know, it's it's there's a few rooms there that should be, you know, carved off and, and maybe a few others that should be expanded. So, um, yeah, at this point, uh, other than the general things, making it easier to search and more friendly to newcomers, um, I don't think there's too much more we can talk about right now, but we are going through and figuring out what we're going to trim off. All right. Well, it sounds like over the next however many months or however, this could be a years long project. Uh, there'll, there'll be announcements along the way. So we'll look, we'll look forward to hearing more about that as, as time goes on. So today we are, this is number three, I think, of talking about tacit programming, aka kind of point-free programming. We've discussed the subtle differences between 
the word tacit and point free in our two prior episodes. We will link to both of those in the show notes for folks that want to go check those out. Um, I always have a super fun time uh, recording these episodes. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to, we're going to start by trying to solve a problem live, which I have not fielded uh, to my three uh, p- panelists. So Bob, Steven, and Adam are going to uh, try and solve this live. There's no um, real right or wrong answer. I'm interested just to, to see what these array minds, what their first initial thought of, and you don't actually have to, you know, spell out the, oh, it's a reverse and then a parentheses and whatever. It's just like the, the uh, verbal explanation of how you would do this. Um, because I think diving into, you know, the character by character solution of this is probably not super interesting to the, um, to the listener. Um, but the, the problem is, uh, as follows, I believe it's, it's from a Pearl weekly challenge and it's called, uh, well, actually I won't tell you what it's called because then you might be able to look it up while, while I'm explaining it. But basically you're given an array of numbers. So for instance, we'll call it one, two, three, four. And you want to uh, return another array of numbers, which is equal to the product of each of the elements, um, but where you have removed one element each time. So for one, two, three, four, you want to first remove one and then take the product of that, which will be two times three times four, which is 12. So that'll be your first number in your output. Your second number will be removing the two. So one times three times, or no, so two times three times four is uh, 24, sorry. Uh, removing the two, which is one times three times four, which is gonna be 12. And then, so it's, it's 24, 12. Then you remove the three, is gonna be one times two times four is eight. And then you're gonna remove the four, which is gonna be one times two times three is six. So, I mean, that's sort of a trivial example where it's increasing, but you could have like 10, five, you know, seven, eight, and so, uh, you're basically one by one removing an element and then taking the product of that array and that corresponds to an element in the output array. So there's several different ways that when I first stumbled across this, I solved it. And I'm interested to think, or I'm interested to hear. Um, so whoever wants to go first or, you know, whatever first comes to mind. Uh, just to be clear, make sure I've, I've, I've followed the problem. Uh, if you've got n elements in the array, then the um, then the result um, to be returned is going to be uh, an array an array of n elements, but each one is a is a product formed in the way you described. Correct. Yes. Where technically the index of the output is going to correspond to the product of the array with that index, the corresponding index removed. Oh, cool. Then it's trivial. Oh, trivial. Uh, so I could put a market. I'm going to put a marker down for an immediate solution, but I won't say what it is. And let's hear from my colleagues. Okay, so I think Stephen, and this this could go poorly, because uh, this could go poorly if all three of you jump to the the solution that I have in mind. So uh, Adam, or actually, maybe tell me how many characters uh, in whichever language you have. Um, even if you're off by a couple, it doesn't really matter. Just so ballpark that I know. Um, I've got 16 in, as a APL defen. Okay. Roughly 16 for, for Adam. Uh, Steven? I've got nine as a defen. Okay. That's, that's, that's ballpark what I'm expecting. And Bob? I've got six, but I haven't run. I, I mean, I'm just doing it in my head. I'm not, I could do it on the machine, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Plus or minus is just ballpark. So let's go with the, let's go with the longest then first. So we'll start with Adam. And like I said, you don't need to read it character by character, but just verbally explain how you would go about doing this. 
Right. So um, assuming that the input array is, is a list, a vector. Uh, so I generate all the indices for that vector. And then I use a set difference where I take the entire set of those indices and pair them pair it up with set difference with each one of those indices. So I use the rank operator for that. Um, and then that gives me a two-dimensional uh, array of indices, which I can then use to index into the original array. And now I have on each row another subset of the input array, which I can then just uh, multiply across. Okay, so I, I don't think I understood the set difference part, but it sounded like you were building up a matrix where each row in the matrix corresponds to a mask that's being applied to your original array, and then you're just doing... Not a mask, but a, a, set, a list of indices. Or a list of indices, and then you're using that to what? Pull or pick? So, so now I have a matrix of indices, and I can just use that to index into the full array. Okay. So that gives me an, a matrix of elements, right. and then each row corresponds to a subset that I can then multiply across. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, do, do either Stephen or Bob want clarification, just in case the listener or... So yeah, probably, depending on what level you're at in your array journey, that may or may not have made sense. But what we'll do is maybe after this, I'll collect or ask folks to, to type up their solutions and we can find a way to link that if people um, want to take a look and actually read through these. Um, okay, so that's we got the first solution from Adam, which is sort of building up a, a matrix of indices that are used to sort of uh, extract out the corresponding indices so you can get the subarrays, and then you just do multiplication on those subarrays. Uh, we'll hop over to Steven, who's got the, the next shortest solution, plus or minus a couple characters. Yeah, actually, uh, Adam's approach was the first one. I was thinking of, and if you express it the in, in the terms of like equivalent masks, you can get that by generating an identity matrix. But you don't need to do that. Um, the, the solution is the pro. If um, yeah, if if the original array is x, it's um, multiply reduce x and then divide by x. Yes. Stephen has Stephen has gotten to uh, what will be uh, close to the optimal solution, basically very close. Where do you want to explain that again, just in case uh, listeners didn't catch it? So we got an, we got a list with n items in it, and we want the product, um, but we want n products, each um, each one a product with one item taken out. So um, that's equivalent to the product of the in all the items in the list um, divided by the items in the list. What do you do if one of the elements in the list is a zero? Nasty. Uh, we'll ignore that corner case um, and assume that uh, that does not exist and all, all the values have to be either negative or positive, but can't be zero. Um, but yeah, that's a good, that's a good corner case point. Um, but yeah, and so and the reason that uh, this works so nicely in an array language is that you can so you if you get the product you end up with a scalar. So if in our example it would have been one two three four equals twenty four, and then you can divide that by an array to get the resulting array. But many languages you'd have to set up you know some sort of map in a functional language or list comprehension in a in a in a language like Python or something. Uh, but let's skip to Bob to see if he had a even different solution than the two stated there. 
Okay, so my solution actually has, and again, it's all in my head, so when we come to writing it out, it may be completely wrong. Um, there is a, um, a verb in, in uh, J called outfix, and, I, and I'm smiling when I say it because at one point, I think it was when you were doing one of your live um, uh, things with uh, trying to revamp the, the J source and turn it over to C++, we found infix... And, and you said, you know, oh, this is called infix. What kind of a name is that? And what happens if you do this other thing? And I said, well, that's outfix. And you said, oh, that's even more ridiculous. Well, outfix is exactly what you're looking at. So you, all outfix does is it takes the list and removes one at a time. And it gives you the array of items without the, the, the missing one each time. Now, you can change the number of items that you take out each time. But in this case, I think it's negative one I'd use. So it doesn't, um, it's only taking out one at a time. Anyway, once I've got that list, all I'm doing is I'm doing um, a product um, reduce across each line. So I'm just multiplying each line across. That's how I do it. That's awesome. Yeah. So that I, at least to my knowledge, does not ex that outfix operation does not exist in APL or BQN. Although I do have a limited knowledge of BQN, so it's possible it does. Um, but yeah, that is that would be a very useful utility to have if you're trying to solve a problem like this. So this is this is actually I was concerned for a sec. Um, that uh, everyone was going to come up with the exact same solution because Stephen got it so quickly. Um, but so when I was solving this, I'll walk through the three different solutions that I initially uh, uh, came to and then the third one and how that relates to Stephen. So the first way I sort of solved this was similar to Adam's, although with the twist that Stephen mentioned, where you're, you're taking masks. And so you sort of get the identity matrix, you not that identity matrix so that you get zeros down the middle, and then you can sort of using mix or whatever, uh, you know, and replicate, filter out the ones you want, and then do the product across. Uh, the second thing I was like, well, this probably isn't the best, but I'll give it a shot. I tried basically using uh, an iota sequence and rotating and then dropping the first element. So a little bit more work, um, but it actually turns out to sort of be the same number of characters as the initial solution using sort of uh, the Boolean masks and filtering out. And then I stared at it for a while because... I'm starting to get this intuition is when, when I look at a solution that has a certain number of parentheses or just the length to it based on the complexity of the problem, that there's got to be a simpler way to do it. And that's when I came to Stephen's solution. But Stephen's solution in tacit form is four characters. It's plus slash, or sorry, multiply slash for your reduction, division for your binary operation, and then identity for your write operation. Um, which is actually the equivalent, I believe, of a, a hook in J. Um, and this problem, like to me, and this is what's going to lead into us talking about our favorite tacit expressions, is such a good demonstration of why tacit programming is so incredibly powerful and beautiful. Because if you compare my two original solutions of building up the indices using the identity matrix and knotting it. And then, you know, you got to mix it and filter it out. Probably there's a more polished way to do it because I'm not the world's best APLer, but it's, it's, you know, a double digit number of characters and there's a lot going on. And then you do it the rotate way. That's definitely suboptimal. And then you come to this four character fork where um, it's just basically doing a reduction and a division and identity. And it's just like, and, and that's the thing is, Stephen, you jumped to it pretty quickly in that recognizing that you can just basically do a single reduction, a multiplies reduction, and then divide out each of the individual characters. I didn't jump to that until I was looking for a fork or something simpler. 
And it, it was the APL, the fact that APL and these array languages have these uh, combinators that like pushed me in the direction to think, is there like an easier solution? Because I think na naively, um, when you have all these algorithms at your disposal, building up sort of a Boolean mask or indices to sort of select out the elements you want and then multiply them one by one, that to me is like the, what like is the most obvious or intuitive thing to do because that's kind of what you would do in real life if you were just one by one. Like when I was explaining it, I explained it one by one, sort of going through the first example, drop, dropping out a character. I didn't explain it by multiplying them all up and then dividing them out because that's not really what the problem was asking for. It's a way of solving the problem. Um, but at least for me, it didn't become obvious that you could do that until uh, I was looking for sort of a fork or a combinator expression. Anyways, I'll stop there, get folks' thoughts, uh, because yeah, and, and maybe I'll make a YouTube video uh, along with this to sort of launch when this episode comes out, because probably there was a few folks that are just starting out in the array world, and they're like, what in God's name are they talking about? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll pause. What do, what do folks uh, think, or do they agree, disagree? Uh, Bob, you go ahead. Well, one thing, and it goes actually back to the most recent episode of your other podcast, ADSP, because the fact that you got a shorter list of um, verbs or operators or conjunctions or whatever you want to call them doesn't mean that it's more efficient. Um, it's the implementation. So you would need to look at the different things, um, the different ways it's being done and the ways the languages are actually interpreting it. There might be certain combinations that are even quicker, but they might not be as short. But you, I take your point that uh, if you are looking at Tacit, it does tend to stimulate your mind to look for other solutions because you may only be typing out, you know, four or five characters. And so it's easy to try it and you'd come back, which is another thing I was thinking about when you asked the question. If you're thinking about typically how I would solve this problem, I'm, I'm listening to your question originally. And I'm kind of, well, as close as I come to panicking because... The way I would normally do this is probably jump it onto a keyboard, try a bunch of things, and 15 minutes later I might come up with something, and 15 minutes after that I might actually come up with something that I'm very satisfied with. But it's not something I would do usually off the top of my head. But luckily, as soon as you said something, I said, well, that's it, that's outfix. I, I said, you know, the, the, the stress level dropped. So um, the um, I guess the thing I'm saying is the way I approach it, it sounds like, you know, we can come up with these things off the top of my head, but for me, or at the top of our heads, but for me, that's very atypical. Normally, I would be, you know, uh, yeah, Adam sounds like a good solution. I mean, that's about the best I could come up with. Yeah, and I, w I will admit, it's a tiny bit uh, unfair uh, because when I solved this, I did exactly that. I don't think I came to that solution. I'm not sure if it was 15 minutes or 30 minutes, but I did exactly that. I started, you know, playing around sort of as I've done in previous YouTube videos where ah, I, this is the most naive thing i'll do that we'll see and then i'll try something else and then i'll i'll sit and i'll be like there's got to be something better than this right um and it's not until i've tried a couple different things um with respect to the performance though a hundred percent i've seen you know the apl wizards that know what under the hood is going on with dialogue apl they'll be like oh well this is great but if you do this or this and it's a little bit longer and some of the times you're just like oh they know some optimization that under a certain length this one algorithm is going to be blazingly fast um for this problem, though, I actually think the fork is by far the most performant because the two other solutions are going to involve quadratic space in a sense because you're building up all these masks or a list of indices, whereas in this one, it's a single reduction with 
another basically uh, a, a, a scalar with an array operation, which is going to be quite fast. So um, that being said, though, I think this is a unique problem in that many times there always is some longer form that relies on extra knowledge uh, that'll be faster if, if you really know the ins and outs of the interpreter. As best I can reconstruct my, my thoughts on this, I jumped initially to the same approach that Adam was using, which I would say is a more general approach. Because if you're going to like take some elements out of the list and then product, then generating a bunch of masks seems like, seems like a good place to start. And it was only when I saw, oh, I'm only taking out one in each case, and it's a different one each time that I got the, the insight and um, that I only needed to do the one um, a product of it. Uh, I've got an extension to cope with Adam's Adam's corner case. All right, let's hear it. So uh, I said, take the product of x divide by x to cope with Adam's corner case. Um, you divide by x plus x equals zero. Oh yeah, that's. And I wonder. Now that's a simple and obvious extension, which I put in in a heartbeat as soon as Adam made his annoying comment. <laughs> I put that into, into the um, D function. But I'm thinking, so what do I do now if I'm, if I'm still wanting to go tacit? In K, no chance, I guess. <laughs> in APL, not a problem at all. You can literally write the yeah. product, and then J is the same thing. Uh, product divided by the identity plus zero equals the identity. Or you could combine the zero and the equals by binding the argument, the currying the argument. So, so the identity plus zero equals. What would we want the result to be? Because if I'm thinking, say there was one zero in your string, what you're going to end up as a result is a bunch of zeros except for the one where the zero's taken out and you'd get a, a positive integer, right? This is what you asked for. Yeah, yeah, I know, but that's what I'm saying is that I'm 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 not clear on where it creates such a problem with well, I guess if you're doing the division division by zero, yeah. Division that's by zero, which in J gives you infinity. It actually gives you a value which is infinity. It's not the undefined. Go ahead, Stephen. I just could say my fix doesn't clearly doesn't work at all. Because if you don't add that into what you take, it doesn't work because when you initially take the product of x, it's going to be zero. Yeah. So you can write it tacitly. It doesn't help you. It's still wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get. Oh, you, right. What you need yeah. to do is you need to. You know, even that, you could. I was thinking you could remove all the zeros first, but that's not going to help you either. Because if there's multiple zeros, they need to be factored in. The, another thing that I thought about when you said you think, well, it's all very clever. The product divided by, uh, by all the elements, and I think a morale of this maybe is know your data. Connor comes in afterwards. Oh, there are no zeros. Well, duh, he didn't tell me that. Right? <laughs> and 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 also, and uh, what about nested data? Right, this is not going to work if every element of your list itself has multiple elements. That's just going to be BMS. Whereas using masks or indices will give you exactly what you're asking for. And as as you mentioned before, also, if we wanted to switch up the operations here, so it's not multiply, it's some other operation. 
Yeah. It only works because you have this nice relationship between multiplication and division, but not everything can be reversed. What if it was max or min? There's nothing you can do. It's lossy. See, I'm really glad this this discussion's turned into this sort of deeper thing. People who are starting out with the array languages are going to be going, oh my goodness, this is so confusing. And the point is, is that none of us, I don't think in most general circumstances, would have come up with something off the top of our heads, if not for our experience. And when we were starting out, we certainly would have been trying things and putting things together because that's the nature of a language that's interpreted. So if, if, the, if the solution doesn't strike you because of your experience right away and you're, you're, you're you know, walking the swamp trying to figure out what's, a, you know, what's water and what's mud, um, you're, you would be in with the rest of us. If, if it doesn't come from experience, then it comes from working through the problem. And as Adam says, really important to think about your data because that's where it starts from. You're making a transformation on the data. If you don't understand the data, it would be very hard to come up with the right transformation. Yeah, and it's it's a great point from from Adam that um, I think I a, a really valid criticism that I get a lot on the YouTube videos that I make is that I'm solving these little leak code problems where they have these really nice constraints on like oh well we know that the list is going to be less than a thousand characters and it's always going to be flat and you're not going to have any you know bad input or something. Um, it's designed for you to solve the algorithm part and not have to think about all the corner cases of data. And you know stuff that you might run into the real world, where um, when you're actually writing production code, you know to deal with the real world, that stuff is very important. Um, yeah, so I can com I, I completely think that's a great point, and I'll actually I'll go and find the problem statement and see. But my guess is that zeros are included, and uh, I think I submitted that as solutions, and so my solutions are technically broken for for that corner case. And if you had multiple zeros then you're going to have zeros right across the board in your your solution. Yeah. So so if this was production code, very important production code, you could speed up things by starting off with some testing some things. Are there any zeros? How many zeros are there? In which case, early outs. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm not even sure what production. Maybe that's we can we can all go away and what would we write, but one version is just to have, you know, is the zero count greater than 1? And then it's just zeros across the board. Is the zero count one? In which case, it's just the filtering out that one zero in the product. And then the fork works perfectly. <laughs> but is that better or more performant than um, sort of the index one or the the boolean mask one or even the out the, the outfix one? Oh, absolutely. Mm, if you've only got one zero, then there's only one of your there's there's only one non-zero element in your result. Yeah, I mean, in the general case where there are no zeros, even then, I mean, then we're talking not comparable at all. Right. Yeah. You can use you can use vector processing, and 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 we're talking about uh, about two n multiplications, right? Mm -hmm. Or divisions. Whatever. So it doesn't even it comes nowhere close to the o n squared stuff that we do otherwise. But again, it's not as general. Right. Right. Yeah, and I, I will say that that pattern of building up the indices, um, whether that's using an identity matrix to filter out, you know, a single one, or if it's you know using the the two base to get sort of the binary representations of different numbers between certain ranges, it's an extremely useful pattern that is, you know, if you if you learn how to write that solution, you've also it's you know 
uh, this is where if Aaron Shu is listening, it's be like, that's exactly my point is, you know, you learn that sort of one pattern um, and or idiom, I guess, if you will. And it extends to so many different use cases, not where you're just dropping a single element, but if, if you have some other patterns where you need to filter based on some sort of operation or predicate, um, it becomes very useful. Um, but at this point, let's segue now into our uh, favorite, or sorry, Stephen, you're going to, you got one follow-up thing. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on a point that you was raised, I think it was last week about test-driven design. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about how you, actually do these things in the REPL and we and Bob was saying, you know, I sit down and type some stuff. And I'm thinking again, if you um, weren't deliberately catching me on the hop in front of the microphone, um, I sat down and tried a few expressions and at a fairly early point, I'd have generated a bunch of vectors to try this on. And do that in the REPL without having to set up a test truck framework or so forth and satisfy myself that I was getting the right answers across a variety of cases. And I do that pretty informally. It's not, it doesn't really qualify as test-driven design because the tests would be stuff I've made up on the fly, but it pretty quickly gets me to um, code that works over a wide number of cases. And um, sometimes I've been able to put in in, um, a comment line in a one or two line function, a single expression, which when executed will um, test whether the function's working. So what I want to, the point I guess I'm reaching for here is that the, what I guess we think of as the natural way of working in the REPL in the array languages incorporates a lot of test driven design principles. Yeah, I completely agree. That's basically every time I'm solving one of these, you know, cute problems, I'll start with the first test case and just work until I get a solution that solves that. And then I'll immediately either, you know, I don't actually know how to nicely build up and iterate over binary functions, but if they're unary, I'll just create like a, a whatever list of lists with the parentheses in APL and then just do a for each and I'll check, do, do my answers match the answers? Um, and so I, I don't think that's purely... I think there's different flavors of test-driven test design, but one of them is sort of like the red-green or whatever, where you, you set up your first test and it fails, and then you get that to pass, and then you go and try and find another one that fails. But like this is sort of loosely that. You're, you're getting your first test, getting it to pass, and then ideally, if you did it right, you know all your other test cases, they just light up green and you're good to go. Um, but it's, it's honestly like when you're in that REPL, I don't even know, is there another way to develop? Like It just seems like the natural way to like... That's the thing is... I've worked at companies where there was no unit testing, but that's just because it was this sort of behemoth program that had what they called regression testing, where they would sort of output just a crazy amount of data and they would check, oh, is all that data equal to each other? But it's very hard if you don't build unit testing in from the beginning to sort of like shoehorn that on afterwards. But if you build unit testing into your system um, from, from the get-go and then you just have like a file of unit tests or you know a bunch of files of unit tests, like the first thing, anytime I'm adding some new functionality is I just go write a unit test just because it's like, oh, well, I know I need to get this to run and I'm gonna have to write it at the end anyways because like, you don't, you don't submit code without adding tests for it um, or at least that, that's the way it works on my team and hopefully most teams aren't <laughs> releasing code without testing it. That like, if you have that framework, I don't even know uh, what the alternative is. Like it just, it's, I guess you could start coding and then after the fact, write the test. But it's like, if you can write the test 
and then just sort of have a shell that calls a function that starts out empty and then you start building it up. Um, it just, to me, it makes, that's just why would you do it any other way? Because at some point you're going to finish that function. It's going to light up green and you're going to get this little, you know, warm, fuzzy feeling in your brain is, ah, I did it. Let's go write another test and see if I, I forgot or I got all the cases. Or I'm not sure if folks have alternative methods if they want to share or if everyone is sort of just, that's how, that's how they operate. Well, I, I think it can, the test can be distracting. If I have an idea about how I'm going to solve this problem, I need to get that out of my head and into the interpreter as soon as possible. And then I can go and, and write my tests afterwards. If I have to start off by writing tests and then deal with a bunch of messages coming out that this is failing, this is failing as I go along, it's distracting, it's noise. So I guess my question is, is when you're building, when you're getting that idea out of your head, are you doing it as like a tacit expression with no data to the right of it that's not evaluating anything? Or like, do you, do you at least have a simple, like, cause that's the thing is anytime I'm in a REPL, I always have some data to the right of my function. I'm not building up a function and then adding a plus reduce and then adding a filter with no data because how do I know if I'm typing it correctly? Like uh, I need the interpreter to tell me, oh, wait, you didn't do that right. Go fix it at this point. So like, at least for me, there's always a small piece of data to the right of the expression I'm building up, which is, I guess, kind of the point that I'm making is, is that that is inherently a form of kind of test-driven design. Sure, you didn't go write 50 tests in advance, um, but a lot of the times that's what it worked. You write one test, you get that to work, and then you go write a bunch of others to see if you got it right. Um, I would say so it depends. I switch method. Like uh, if it's something small, I might like sometimes I do code golf challenges and I might very well then take all the inputs and all the outputs that are specified as test cases and then develop in between those and match them all the time. So I can see I get a Boolean output or something, whether they whether they match. Sometimes I'll do top-down programming, in which case nothing will work at all until I'm done. And then I can run the tests, write the test at the end. And sometimes I build it up from the from the bottom, like you say, with some test cases, in which case I, I tend to try to find the most difficult case, the one that has the most pitfalls and things in it. Um, I think all of these are, are valid ways of doing it. Yeah, I like to think of it like I'm playing around with it. I mean, it sounds silly, but I'm I'm playing with it. Like I'll I'll probe it. I'll try different things. And the other thing I do, because Jay has an awful lot of primitives, and I oh, I can't even keep track of all of them sometimes. Um, I'll go to the to the Nuvoc page and and look at what all the primitives are, and and just see what might fit, and try a few things. Um, and I, I am I am I am using it on data, so. I think that's pretty constant. I wouldn't just write uh, tacit without trying it. The, the, the trying it is really important. So I need data to have it run through. But I'm not always um, focusing maybe as much on the data as I should, but I'm, I'm running something through each time and seeing what I end up. And the first couple of times I go through, maybe it works or maybe it doesn't work. Usually it doesn't work. And I'm learning through that process. And... and it just comes with experience. I might now know, look, have a better idea where I want to look for the solution than I did when I started out. But that just came from um, being willing to play with it, you know. Um, and it's very, it's not very structured. That was something I think when Ron Murray brought the, the test driven up in the last episode. Um, 
I'm, I, it's, I certainly don't do any formal type of test until I've written what I want. And then what I will use tests for is to make sure that any changes I put in don't break. I definitely do that. All right. So it sounds like it sounds like we need to have a full blown episode on test driven development, uh, whether that's in APL or just sort of uh, in software programming at large. Um, but but yeah, I've always I've heard of these sort of test driven development frameworks in certain languages like Ruby, where you can it's very easy to sort of write your tests and then just like it's built into your sort of workflow. Um, and I will say that at least from the APL programming or J programming that I've done, that is not, it's not built in. It is very easy to sort of set that up. Um, but I, I love the idea of some sort of like IDE where if you're building up just one expression, you sort of have a single line at the top and then like sort of you have this pane where you can just type in some data and the result that you expect and that like it, it will initially show, you know, pink or red or something. And as you start to build things up and get it to work, um, it'll just go green, 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 like a little Christmas tree with light bulb colors changing and um, I don't know. That tickles my brain whenever, whenever I'm iterating like that. But um, I mean, Adam's technique of of top down or being able to build it all up, you know, for the hardest case, like that sounds like next level. Like you know, once you've once you've reached a certain level of APL or you've become enlightened. Um, although even if I even if I could do that at some point, I have too much. I feel like I have too much fun in the REPL, like just watching the result change. That like. I would never want to, I mean, I, I shouldn't say never, but just like whether it's Haskell or APL or closure, iterating and being like, oh, now I'm going to map, now I'm going to filter and then reduce and there's my answer. Like getting to see the, the result change, uh, it's like it gives me confidence that I'm going in the right direction. Whereas even if I get to the point where I could build it up uh, in my head or like sort of type it out all at once, um, I would be like, rep uh, what's the word? Repriving, reprieving or like whatever. I would be holding back that little confidence boosts that I get to actually know that I'm like, I would just be, I think this is right each time. I think this is right. And then at the end, it would be either a very jubilant moment of like, I nailed it. Or like, yeah, no, clearly, clearly my thinking that I was right was a little bit off and <laughs> that I missed something somewhere, which I will say is mostly what C++ programming is like, is you, you program, you program, you compile, and then uh, you deal with compiler errors for the next hour until you sort those out, and then it works, and then you go, oh, okay. No, but see, that's where the for me very much of the of the interactive debugging development comes in. So I might write all my code, and it should work, but you know the computer doesn't understand what I mean; it only does what I tell it to do. So I start running my code, and I hit some error, or I get the wrong result, or I might start tracing through. But now I can go and change my code while it's on the stack because APL allows that, right? Mm. And then, so I, I backtrack, say, oh, so this is not working. I can inspect the values as we go along. This doesn't look right. Backtrack two lines. Okay, so far it's looking good. Have a look at the next line, the next things that are happening, edit those, then execute the next line. Yeah, this is looking good. And then even just continue. And then it all goes bad, stop again, go back until I've worked my way through the program and fixed all the issues. And I think, I think there's a, potential pitfall in, in the doing everything based on tests because you might you might have all these tests of say numbers that you want multiplied except for each element in each time you, in, you you go through them and you passed all the tests and it's all great but if your focus is not on those test cases your focus is on the algorithms as you call them or the primitives then I see division as I'm implementing it and I think uh oh 
any zeros here will mess up. If I'd only based myself on the test cases, I would have missed that. But if I'm focusing on the algorithms involved, then I think right away, this is dangerous. There's an edge case lurking here. Mm. That's a great point. That's a great point. Speaking of which, I actually did, I can't remember when, 10 minutes ago or something, I looked up the problem. And the problem statement is you are given an array of positive integers. So if I had done my research correctly, I would have saved myself from the corner case. Although I still think it leads to a great discussion because, like I said, these cute problems, typically they put really nice, uh, you know, restrictions around the data, which makes it lovely to solve. But when you translate that to the real world is... Um, is not as, as as nice and cute as that. Um, What's the result if the list is empty? Uh, it doesn't say that you're given a minimum number of elements. So <laughs> Adam here is just our corner case whiz. Um, uh, you want him on the uh, uh, overseeing the QA um, in the, the, the unit test writing. The reason that I brought this up was gonna be to transition into sort of what are our favorite tacit expressions. And I think to date, this was like the most excited I ever got about discovering a tacit solution um, because of the difference between my first two initial solutions and not even that those were bad solutions, but just like how much clearer, like I could read, I can read four characters of APL, especially when two of them reform a, re a reduction, like in less than five seconds. Um, whereas those other ones, if I had been reading someone else's code, I could read it. It would just take me a second to figure out what was going on. Um, so yeah, for me, it's uh, this sort of uh, array of product is the name of the problem solution. And if I had to choose, you know, one other off the top of my head, it'd probably be is palindrome. That's like the classic case that whenever I want to explain um, what a, uh, a fork is to people, uh, because it's just reverse match identity. And you can even do it as a hook in J if I feel like I want to explain that to folks. I typically don't. Understandable. Um, <laughs> but um, um but yeah, that's is palindrome and then also array of product. But yeah, my go-to is, is you know, probably favorite, and I've tweeted it a couple of times, is the is palindrome. But uh, maybe let's go to Adam uh, and then to, to Stephen and Bob. And I'm not sure. I think Adam has quite a few, so I'm not sure if we want to go through them all or um, how much deep explanation is required for each one. Um, but yeah, just take it away and we'll go from there. So we're doing what? Trains? Any tested function? There's so many. They're all interesting um maybe i would say there's a primitive in in apl and also in j uh, that's it's really a powerful one it's called find um and it takes two arrays of arbitrary shape and type and everything and then it returns uh, a boolean mask corresponding to the lookup array with a single bit for every element in the lookup array, indicating if the if the needle, should we say, uh, starts in the lookup array at this point. Okay, so as a very simple example, let's say we have an ABAB as a text. That's our haystack. And then our needle is just AB. So we can see that AB begins at the first character and at the third character. So the result would be true, false, true, false, or in APL parlance, 1010. This is very powerful and in general, but very often I want to find out whether uh, 
whether one array is a prefix of another array. And so we have a function called first, and we have this find function, and we just stick them together to form an atop, the first of the find. So if the looked for array is located in the top left corner, so to say, but in as many dimensions as you want of the, of the lookup array, then the very first bit in the result is true. And so the first of that tells me whether or not it's a prefix of the other one. And I think that's pretty cool. And it, it hints at many other things you could potentially do with this. So I'll, even though you asked me for one, I'll throw in a couple of variations. If instead you do an, uh, an or reduction of such a find, that tells you whether it's found as a subarray anywhere in there. Or you could do a plus reduction and ask how many places can you find this array? And so on. And you can then you can start combining it with reverses to find if it's a if it's a, uh, a suffix array rather than a prefix array, and so on, and so on. There are endless possibilities there. Because your result is Boolean, you can you can yeah. whenever you have a one, you have an indication that there's that subarray. And if, there, if you had no ones, there would be no subarray. So you can do all sorts of different manipulations with that. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't use find ever because it's not in my like lexicon of APL verbs that I know. But it's for those of you that are learning APL and that are also in my position, it's epsilon underbar. Um, and yeah, that's very cool. Um, and a top for those uh, that aren't familiar, it's the B1 combinator where you evaluate the binary function on the right first and then pass that to the unary function on the left, which I love the B1 combinator. I'm not sure if it's my favorite combinator. Um, it's what's, yeah, what, what is referred to as an atop. But yeah, that is, that's very beautiful. I always end up learning, learning stuff in these episodes. And I think it's, it's just a, there seems to be like a huge, not divide, but just like there's different camps of, and not even just camps. I'd call it like there's a spectrum of like people that are sort of, ah, you use tacit when it's, you know, super short, super expressive, but not really any other time. And then uh, folks that are, you know, tacit all the things, like that's what Jay was initially, I think, intended to be sort of everything tacit. I've heard of folks in the Jay community. Um, I won't remember their name, but they're on the reflector and Apparently they have like custom versions of the J, you know, nine or something interpreter that they've gone and they, they write everything tacit. And uh, Jose Marie Quintana and it's Pepe. Yeah. Pepe um, is, is the nickname that I remember. And so they're just like, you know, clearly everyone in this community, uh, like that was our first episode. Why do you love array languages? Why do you love the paradigm? So we were all in, in love with, you know, whether APLJ, KQ, BQN. Um, but within that community, there's definitely uh, a spectrum of, how people feel like even Henry, when we had him on, you know, he said he, he personally really enjoyed um, writing tacit expressions, but from the teaching perspective and what he viewed that a lot of the times you end up going too far. And so I think it's, yeah, I, I just find it a fascinating conversation to get different folks takes on, on what their motivations for loving it or not loving it are. And on a recent forum, you were talking about reflector of the forums, um, I think it was Ian Clark came up with the point that he feels that uh, Jay should probably hide tacit as much as possible for beginners because it really isn't um, a thing that... It doesn't help the understanding of beginners 
if they've come from most other programming environments. It'd be lovely to see what would happen if you had somebody come from a, a mathematical combinatorics environment. They'd probably find Tacit really easy to figure out. But for most people who work with computers, Tacit really is another jump, and it's not the one that, that you need to do initially to understand the language. You're easier, it's easier to start with some variables and places that you'd expect, and then you work with those, and then eventually you find out, oh, well, I could get rid of these. But it's another step to do it. I, I think Aaron Chu, at one point in a discussion, talked about it being a different dimension of the way you look at a problem. Rather than linear, it becomes more like a tree. And I think that's a, that's a step that you probably don't want to put on beginners unless they're already thinking in that way. They have that kind of training. Yeah, I, I do think there are some less great things about tacit just in the way that things are evaluated. Like probably I think the most, not upsetting or confusing, but one of, one of the most upsetting or confusing things is that when you assign a tacit expression, like a fork to a function, and then if you just want to um, inline that per se, so you take your is palindrome that's named, and then you're using that. Um, but then you just want to copy the contents of that function and replace it. Sometimes you can't do that, and you need to parenthesize it in order to let the uh, interpreter know that this is a three train. Um, and I think that is very, very counterintuitive coming from basically any other language because um, having things that, you know, three in a row evaluate to a certain thing um, I think is pretty novel and it doesn't exist in Python or whatever. Like if a lot of the times, if you've got some one liner function and you just copy and place, uh, copy and paste it, um, it'll work. Uh, but for this, those parentheses are essential for it evaluating correctly. Well, and the thing that you're, you're doing in that point, when you're defining it without parentheses, you're relying on the fact that everything to the right of your assignment is essentially parenthesized, right? Because, I mean, you're, you're taking that as a block and sending it over and assigning it to a name. Um, so you actually, it, you've, you've parenthesized it without realizing you have. Right, And the right. problem is, is you take that string without doing the assignment and drop it into the place that you're going to do that fork. And now instead of doing it like a fork, it's doing it sequentially because that's how it does things when it sees a line without parentheses. So I think that's where that comes from. And yeah, it's a common, it's a common place where people you know, make a mistake. Yeah, there's a concept of isolation, right? That it's, it has to be isolated from, from surroundings. And if you don't do that, then it, it won't work. And it's, of course, extremely common to, to mess this up. Um, maybe a benefit in NAR, the NARS 2000 implementation of APL has recently added uh, trains as well. But it never allows trains without parentheses. So even if you say foo gets some train, you must put parentheses around it. Otherwise, it will bark at you as a syntax error. And while it might seem a bit excessive to, to require that, it does prevent some errors uh, later. So I can I can see the value of that. But the, it's not the only case, by the way. And even if you have an, an operator, the attic operator that takes a, uh, an array right operand, that will clash if you put it in line with an argument. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, yeah, you mentioned, oh, NARS, uh, that interpreter 
might be nicer. And even though I just finished explaining how that was like one of the biggest warts or confusing parts, like in my brain, I was like, yeah, but that's, I mean, I know now, and that's two extra characters. <laughs> You're writing something that's four characters, and now um, you have to add two characters so yeah. of syntax just because. Yeah. That's 50, yeah, 50% longer. I, uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. Even though it did remove some ambiguity, I, uh, I don't like it. Um, yeah, but the parser likes it. Sure, it does. I want to hear what Steven has to say about, about testing things because APL and J, well, there has some really powerful constructs uh, in the form of trains. Um, trains become really awkward if you need to apply multiple monadic functions in succession. We've all been there and all given up and switched to explicit mode, right? Uh, either that or you end up with lots of parentheses and or lots of combinatory operators. But K doesn't do that because all the trains are just straightforward. First, you take one or two arguments and then you just apply monadic functions one by one. Or you could apply a dyadic function with a constant left argument, which is kind of bound together. It's all very straightforward, very easy. I won't speak for K, but for Q, certainly piling up a list of unary functions is um, pretty simple. You can compose them just by listing them and then sticking an at at the end, and that gives you a, a composition. Um, generally speaking, for tacit, I stay strictly in the shallow end of the pool. Uh, but my, but Connor, you were asking about my favorite. My favorite tacit expression, and that took decades to emerge. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And it may help um, those of our listeners who are struggling with the very idea of tacit um, to get some idea of, of what of what the attraction might be. The my favorite is basically the function for range, where you convert a pair of uh, positive numbers, uh, one larger. Uh, the second larger than the first into all the intervening points. And I found way back in the in the 70s, so you know, a uh, range of five to ten would be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So in practice, because of the problems I was encountering, uh, when I, the ones I was working on when I first noticed this, uh, my range is what is it exclusive at the at the far end? So my real world ones were five, eleven would give me five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The eleven was always the next item that we here in a queue. So I was doing this often enough that I wrote a trivial little range function, which would take the two numbers and re return me the list. But it annoyed me that I had to have a function. Uh, sitting around in my working utilities set um, to do this. And I thought surely there's some way of moving from the two numbers to the list without putting a function on the stack and assigning variables and so on. Skipping some intermediate steps. Um, there's, two, there's two moves to this. The first is that um, in APL, if you reduce a pair, a list that's a pair, um, you can use a, a binary function. And basically, the if you use a binary function to reduce a pair, the 
first item on the list becomes the alpha, the second item on the list becomes the omega. So you could use reduction as a way of placing a binary, sorry, dyadic function um, between two items in the list. Hold on, it might be obvious to, to us, but alpha and omega are the leftmost and rightmost characters of the Greek alphabet, therefore being the left and right argument. So. Yes, if you reduce over a list of two elements, the left element becomes the left argument to this binary function and the right element becomes the right argument. Continue, sorry. Which is Greek for thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the, the second part was when I learned that the compose operator would allow me to compose drop and iota so that a down arrow, a drop, followed by compose, followed by the iota would give me a binary function, which would take the index of its right arguments and use its left argument to drop elements off the beginning. So putting this argument in between my two, my beginning and end of my range gave me the, um, all the index points that I wanted. I wrote a, an article, a blog post about three months ago to explain this. It's on my, it's called The Rest is Silence, and it's on my blog, 5jt.com. Easy to find, you can see. But there it was. I was able to replace my range function with a few characters, basically an idiom, which converts two numbers into the range. So what was the expression at the end of the day? Uh, disclose drop jut iota reduction. That's correct. So the idea is you're inserting drop iota, so drop range, which means if you insert that between 5 and 11, you get 5 dropped from the first 11 integers. And the disclose is there because APL reduces the rank from 1 to 0, so it has to enclose the range. Now, annoyingly, Q doesn't let me do that composition of a dyadic with a monadic function or a binary with a unary, as we would say. But it does have a it does have a mechanism um, other than the reduce. The reduce will the reduce will still work between um, a two item list, but the apply operator will let me take such a function and up. Uh, Q, um, Q's lambdas can have up to eight arguments and the apply operator will let me apply such a function to a list of uh, up to eight items. And basically they all get mapped to its arguments. Um, but of course that doesn't give me the tacit. I'm still using a lambda to do it. But okay, but that means <laughs> the Q programmer's favorite tacit expression is written in APL. Oh, um, <laughs> but that is the truth though. No, but I mean, I totally understand the simplicity of, uh, of case trains, if you want, or test expressions. But then again, the difference is three characters or, th or four or so. Uh, you can add braces and names of the arguments and done, and that you can do in J and APL as well. 
okay, in J you have to double those braces now. Um, but then you completely lose that, what is the name of Connor of that, the combinator that tra the three trains are? Uh, the three train, the unary one is a S prime combinator. And the binary one? The binary one I call the golden eagle. Um, the S prime corresponds to the Phoenix uh, or, or the Starling prime. The golden eagle technically doesn't exist. It's a specialization of the E hat combinator. Um, but I mean, I, it's already in, in uh, Marshall Lockbaum's BQN birds uh, site. Uh, he has a link to it, and I basically he links to my Twitter, so now it's official that it's like a thing. So I just need to write like an academic paper and uh, and uh, get it officially. Um, so yeah, it's a I don't know I don't know what the the letter of the combinator would be. Maybe we'll just call it the the e hat hat or something hat squared. I don't know. I'll come up with it. But the the bird is the golden the golden eagle, even though I made that bird up. Um. <laughs> I'll claim that this is one of the oldest combinators. Because mathematics has been using plus minus for, since forever. And, and so you can write A plus minus B, and that just means A plus B come, uh, uh, juxtaposed to A minus B. And that's a train. All right. So, yeah, we are getting past time a little bit, but we, I want to give, and so I'm not even sure if we fully delved into the dyadic hook. So, I think it's going to become like the Matt Damon of our tacit series, where unfortunately we didn't have time to to talk about the dyadic hook, but uh, tune in next time where we definitely will. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's quickly go to Bob and, and get his uh, favorite tacit expression uh, to round this episode out. Oh, I'm going to be such a tease because. I think mine, it was, given what you guys are explaining, what I came up with a problem that I thought I could do with dyadic hooks, and I can. And essentially the problem is, is that, you, that if I want to do um, one operation on my right argument and one operation on my left argument and then combine them, I can do that in two ways. I can do that as a fork, and all I do for the fork is on my uh, right time, I'm going to use start off with the right verb, so I'm only looking at the right argument. And on my left time, I'm going to start off with the left verb, and I'm going to only look at the left argument, and then I'm going to give them whatever operation I want. So, And then the middle time combines them. So that's pretty straightforward with a fork. You can do this with dyadic hooks. And the reason you can do it with dyadic hooks is because the way the hook works is it's asymmetric, and your right time only operates on your right argument. Your left time now combines your left and the result of the right time working on the right argument. So what you start off with is you transpose or reverse the two arguments because you want to start on your you start want to start working on your left argument first. So the first thing you do is reflex, which is a flip. So now I flip the two arguments and in the middle of that flip I'm going to put a hook. And that first right time on that hook is going to be working on what was the left argument but is now the right argument because I've flipped them. And so now I've, I've got my operation only working on my one argument and on my uh, left time I'm going to do another hook and I'm going to flip that one. And when I do that now the in the inner hook, the right tine on the inner hook, will only be working on what was the right tine of the original before I flipped it twice. And then the middle tine is just becomes the 
Adam's laughing at me. Um, the middle time. Because no, kind, of, kind of space. I mean, I'm doing, this is the thing is I, I'm really trying hard to follow because yeah. this sounds like it's up my alley. I love yes. composing combinators to do things where you can isolate. Oh, I really only wanted to do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but li- trying to keep up with the verbal explanation um, definitely uh, my IQ is, uh, yeah, it's, is not helping me out here. That's, <laughs> that's why I laughed when you said, well, what's your favorite? Because, I mean, uh, to me, it's complex. I'm doing a hook within a hook, and I'm flipping them twice. And, in fact, the first time I saw anybody do this kind of thing, it was Raul Miller. And, and he sent this, and this was back in 2011. I went back and looked in the forums for it. And he sent it to Roger, and Roger said, yeah, I don't like it when you do a double flip. <laughs> and that was his only response. Yeah, it would work. I don't like that. I don't, that, that just confuses me. And so if Roger says it confuses him. But the thing is, and this is why I kind of find it intriguing, because I thought about there should be a way to do this, and it all is based on the fact that hooks are asymmetric. So you can do one argument to one side and one argument to the other, and then you do one within the other and flip them, and in that process, you can do a separate operation on each of your arguments and then combine them. The end result is instead of doing five verbs, because you have to use that left and right, and a fork, you end and, and then um, also two conjunctions to combine the right, left, and the operators. So you've got all these you know, moving parts. A little easier to understand, but you've got a lot of moving parts there. You end up with two hooks, only the original three operators, the only original three verbs, I should call them verbs, it actually simplifies it. If you, if you can look for that pattern, it actually simplifies it. But it's, it's, you're doing mental gymnastics to get into that pattern. But once you see that pattern, you go, oh, that's kind of cool. So is this, um, if, if I've got this, this is probably wrong, but it could be right. Um, is this like the, uh, a variation on the psi combinator where, like, for instance, if you're taking the difference of the lengths of two strings... You do like a tally for this is an APL. You do a tally uh, or uh, on the size, and you do that for both strings, and then you take the difference, which is just a minus. This sounds like it's that, but exactly. you don't want the size yeah. to be the same operation. Exactly. You want two different yeah. operations. Okay, and you can do this with a binary uh, fork, aka the golden eagle, but it involves doing an atop or a B1 combinator composed with left and right, which is hella irritating. So what you're actually describing is very useful, and I've come across it multiple times. Uh, so yes, I know where you're at, Bob, and that does sound awesome, although I'm not sure if, we're, if, we, a couple, if anyone's got anything else to say, but that's going to be the perfect point. to And tune in next time for uh, the dyadic hook argument because it sounds like that was using... Uh, uh, Diana Cooks potentially, and uh, people have thoughts. Um, and I, I feel a bit bad for the listener, or how many? There might only be one left after this. Uh, <laughs> I think I think I can, as a non non Jer, I can explain this a little bit differently. I like to explain these these compositional operators as pre and post processing, and the idea here is actually very simple. Whereas what Connor was mentioning, uh, we call over. Um, is pre-processing the arguments to a dyadic function with a single monadic function. And here we have, again, two incoming arguments and we're pre-processing both of them, but we're processing them with two different functions, right? One one for the left side and one for the right side. And all this flipping and things that, that's, yeah, I couldn't follow it either. Um, But it's quite simple, actually. If you think of the hook, 
um, as pre-processing its right argument with the right function. So they have two functions next to each other. The, the left side function is the middle function in a three train. The right side function is uh, a preprocessor for the right argument. And then there's a hidden passing in the left argument from the left. And so all he was doing is saying, well, since we can only preprocess on the right and we don't have a functionality to preprocess on the left, then, okay, let's preprocess the right argument, done. Now flip the arguments around and now the left argument is the right argument. So now we can pre-process that using another hook and then flip it back again where it belongs and apply the final step in the process. I don't know if that was any better. I mean, uh, I'm sure for someone out there that hasn't hung up on this episode, uh, that was better. But I can tell you, I understood what you're saying, but it was just, it was, I'm not sure if it was ab as bad, but we'll have to revisit this. Um, I I'm going to do a video on it. Well, I want to add one more step, Connor. One more step. This this construct, I don't know if it has an official name, but Marshall Luckbaum uh, called it split compose. In the, the idea is that the two different, the two sides take their own tracks and then you, it's all composed together in the middle. And, and the problem here actually is that there is no left hook, right? J has a construct, the two train, which is a right hook. It preprocesses the right argument. It doesn't have a two train for the preprocessing the left argument because we used up the two train. In a in dialog APL, we have uh, the the jot as a very similar thing. It preprocesses the right argument and then applies uh, the left function there. There is one more compositional operator that dialog APL doesn't have and J doesn't have, which is the hook the other way that preprocesses the left one. If you give that a symbol, and in my, my model for an extended dialog APL has that as a symbol, then everything is very simple. Then you can write F reverse compose G compose H. And then the reading order matches, the visual order matches exactly what's going on. You have the two arguments coming in from right and left. The first thing they see are the outer functions. Each one is being processed by its own preprocessor. And then the final product in the middle where they're being combined. And BQN indeed does have this as native um, um, combinator operators. And then it just looks beautiful. This is the, it's the battle of how many things to add, right? Because like in my head, I'm thinking, well, I mean, it's just, that's reflex or the C combinator or flip or commute, whatever you want to call it from whatever language with the original uh, left hook or right hook or whichever it was. But it's the same thing as when I think, you know, we have first in APL, uh, but we have no last. You have to do first compose with reverse. And like, I'm like, uh, should we have, but that's like, where do you draw the line of like adding, you know, primitives or operators to map to this stuff so that you admittedly, I think a single symbol for last would be more beautiful, but is it worth like you can get it with two more characters. Similarly with hook, you can reflex it, but let's pause there. We've overwhelmed the listener. Uh, we, I apologize uh, for those folks that were really enjoying this podcast and uh, we went off, you know, I, I, I remember Steven saying that he was in the shallow end and uh, I think we chuckled and said, Haha, that's fine. And we'll, <laughs> we'll go swim with the sharks in the ocean. We're not even in the deep end anymore because uh, I was confused. Um, uh, so thanks for everyone that hung in there or hooked in there. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we will we'll say um, 
Happy Array Programming in a sec, and uh, stay tuned for episode four, where we may or may not talk about dyadic hooks. Uh, any last thoughts before we, we close out here? I will do a video on what I was proposing, because I think that's the only way somebody will actually follow through. So we'll put a link to that. Yeah, you'll have to make something like where it rotates around when you flip it around, something fancy. <laughs> I'll do it in as many dimensions as you want. <laughs> All right. With that, we will say happy, happy Array, Array Programming. programming. programming.